Well, this isn't so much of an introduction as it is along the lines of a bridge. A bridge for a moment as we settle down and prepare to take in the good things that Bishop Allison has to give us. Nearly 20 years ago, a close friend gave me a book. She thought I would find it helpful given some questions I'd been asking. It was called The Cruelty of Heresy, and boy, did it ever answer my questions. And in all his works, Bishop Allison has this consistent ability to trace the history of ideas from the point of view of their effect on the proclamation of the gospel. He never loses sight of that word we so desperately need when the voices of the world would drown it out. And he is not shy about calling down those false voices, helping us pilgrims not to get caught in the nets that the old flatterer hides for us. Also, I'm privileged to know Bishop Allison personally, so I know that this combination of scholarship and pastoral care is him to the core. Whether he is in Ireland celebrating the Protestant Reformation with the Orange Man, or in the pulpit, or telling stories, it's always the same. He hears that clear trumpet note, that clear trumpet note of God's word to hurting and hurtful men and women, he hears it through the cacophony of the world, and that's the song he plays back for us. And so it's with great joy that I give you Fitzsimmons Allison. I want to begin with a text. But it's not a text. Uh, the text comes later. I want to begin with just a statement of fact that comes out of the scripture, and it's about you. You are our epistle, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on the fleshy tablets of the human heart. not on tablets of stone, but on your very veritable hearts. We really ought to do full disclosure, as Rob has already talked to us about, what full disclosure about the Christianity will mean for us. Christian faith is risky. It will be it will hurt. It will lead to suffering. Joel Oldstein, Robert Schuller, Norman Vincent Peale, notwithstanding. Christian faith is more trust than faith or belief. Faith and belief as English words, I think now are inadequate to translate pistis, and I'm on a one-man bandwagon trying to get people to use the word trust instead of faith. And why? Because faith seems to mean now a bunch of doctrines you can put in a book and give it to somebody. Or belief. Do you believe in divorce? Of course I believe in divorce. I've seen it happen. 
But do I trust the voice? Isn't that a different matter? There's something about the risk of pistis, Christian faith, that trust carries. You know when you use the word trust that you can be betrayed. You can be disappointed. If you don't trust, if you don't care, it would seem that you'd be saved. So the word trust I will try to use instead of faith, and it has every bit of legitimacy as the word faith to do and to bring to our fleshly hearts this vulnerability that pistis, the word for faith as translated, is. Christian faith is more trust and therefore more vulnerable. Robert Frost saw it and grasped it very clearly in a poem in which God's own descent into flesh was meant as a demonstration that the supreme merit lay in risking spirit in substantiation. Substantiation. Spirit and substantiation is incarnation. To incarnate, make flesh. Love, commitment, caring, friendship is a risky thing. The supreme merit lay in risking spirit and substantiation. William Alexander Percy does it very well in that hymn about the disciples, Peter, James, and John. They cast their nets in Galilee just off the hills of Brown. Such happy, simple fisherfolk before the Lord came down, contented, peaceful fishermen before they ever knew. The peace of God that filled their hearts, brimful, and broke them too. Young John, who trimmed the flapping sail. Homeless on Patmos died. Peter, who hauled the taming net, head down was crucified. The peace of God. It is no peace, but strife, closed in the sod. Yet, brothers pray for but one thing, this marvelous peace of God. I remember when I was first ordained, the rector had gone on his vacation, and I had to go tell a 14-year-old boy that his father had been killed in an automobile accident. I didn't know what I was getting into when I went in the ministry. I've got a friend who's a great, big, strapping surgeon. Very con he can stand on his feet for eight hours in, with intense pressure. But he can't go tell this lady she's a widow. And I sympathize with it. When it's written on your hearts, it's written on the fleshy tablets of the human heart. So therefore... I need some encouragement. I need some encouragement because I'm a coward. I don't like suffering. 
I don't like it in myself. I don't like it in you. When I was first ordained, I promise you, if they'd have let me rewrite this, the Christian faith, I would have been a Gnostic. Well, there ain't any flesh on it. And there's no vulnerability. No risk. I'd be a Eutychian. Let that flesh wither away. An Apollinarian. Well, I wouldn't have to think that Jesus said, replace my mind. I don't like it in others. And if I could rewrite it, I would leave out this real incarnation of risking the substantiation and vulnerability and disappointment and hurt. Half of all the heresies result in cowardice. I speak as because I know one. Uh, all heresies are expression of sin. All of the right-wing heresies of Pelagianism, Adoptionism, Nestorianism, they're all reflect my need to be right, my self-righteousness, and all of the Apollinarian and Gnostic and Eutychian heresies represent a flight from incarnation, a flight from the possibility of hurt. And I feel like Ishmael in Moby Dick, he said, I alone am left to tell thee. I've tried to convince people that heresy is a matter of sin, not that you fell asleep in the class or an intellectual matter. It's because some of you share my own cowardice about suffering, and some of you might even share some of my own self-righteousness that would make you congenial with the Pelagian and the Nestorian heresies, but I don't get uh, very far with the academic world. Christian trust requires courage. Uh, Peter was, was, he trusted and he followed. He denied and then he was affirmed. He was encouraged, then he followed, then he backslid and was confronted, and then he was encouraged, and then he became an encourager. Isn't that sort of like you and me? Uh, Jack Allen, the presiding bishop in 1985, when he retired, said, I have loved the church more than the Lord of the church. And he said it for me. There's something about being a Christian that will take the inevitable and universal uh, idols that we have all made about our parents, our birth, our athletic abilities, our striving, our goodness, all these idols, and they will be crushed. And it is painful. I, too, love the church more than the Lord of the church. Like Peter and Jack Allen, our trust grows with our suffering, grows with pain and sorrow and disappointment, but also it grows with the promise and the encouraging fellowship and similar, of similar sufferers. It leads to deeper trust. I could not go back to my early desire for a Gnostic loneliness because I love the people with whom I have suffered. And that love 
And that fellowship is nothing that I would want to be deprived of. That trust that makes us vulnerable. Vulnerable to hurt is also the very trust that is, produces that wonderful community and fellowship. The scripture calls the fellowship of suffering that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And incidentally, if you don't go this way, you'll suffer anyway. <laughs> and it'll be a suffering of death. It's a kind of inevitability. Yes, we have, you are these letters written on the fleshy tablets of your hearts. But in this vulnerability, God does not leave us comfortless. You are our epistle, St. Paul writes of you and me, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God. Christian trust is indeed a gospel of risk, vulnerability, and inevitable suffering. But we must not forget that it is also a gospel of promise, a gospel of reconciliation, a gospel of the new birth, a gospel of transformation and salvation. There is such a thing that I have experienced as pharmaceutical serenity. It keeps me from choking up sometimes, not tonight. But it dulls everything. It loses my contact with the whole, what, um, what the King James calls the bowels. Uh, Trinity, Church, Trinity School for Ministry gave me a a plaque once and had a text on it from Timothy, you refresh the hearts of the saints. Thank goodness they didn't use King James because it says you refresh the bowels of the saints. <laughs> <laughs> but you do not want to lose touch with the, uh, you do not want to lose touch with the splagma, that's the word. Splang of where the, 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 the passion is. You are indeed our epistle. And it blossoms in transcendent serenity, not pharmaceutical serenity, but transcendent serenity, knowing who has the last word. Do, does Fitz have the last word? You know that neither you nor I have the last word. And I'm old enough to even be glad I don't have the last word. Sometimes after having to try to control things, my children and grandchildren and the church, it's so good that I'm not God. Don't you find that sometimes? That you don't have to be in control, and he is. And how does... Uh, this gospel is a gospel that makes saints out of sinners. Robert Penn Warren has a figure in that uh, novel called Willie, and the, the man's name is Willie Stark, and he says, 
Do you know why God made saints out of sinners? And the answer is, because he ain't got nobody else to make him out of. <laughs> How does God make us saints? How does God do this? He writes not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. He does it with one word, one word written on your hearts. That word is the Greek word parakaleo. This word is hidden from us in part by atrocious translations. It is universally translated. It is in very it is variously translated by the following English words. Comfort. Now this is the only concordance I have is on, a, on King James. And I don't possess a Greek concordance. So these, some of you brighter than, more gifted than I need to do a word study on parakaleo and use a, a Greek concordance that I don't have. But in the King James concordance, Comfort 27 times, consolation 13 times, exhort 29 times, uh, beseech 40 times. Now, my authority here is 28 pages in Kittle's Word Book of the Bible. Now, those of you who don't know what Kittle's Word Book of the Bible, it is, uh, it's something one can't do without. It's uh, nine volumes and between eight to ten 800 to 1,000 pages in each volume, and it tells you every, it's a history of how any significant word in Scripture is used um, in all of its various uh, ways. So 28 pages of Kittle on parakaleo justifies me in choosing encouragement or comfort to be used, I would plead exclusively rather than beseech, exhort. Comfort is okay, especially if you remember what it really originally meant, with strength, uh, cum, with, forte, fort, fortress, strong, but it also can border on being a sissy word, like comfort is something soft you put on the bed to keep you warm. Uh, so though I cannot in my heart ever forget those passages in Messiah of Isaiah 40, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, nevertheless, I would prefer encouragement. As a coward, afraid to suffer, I need all the encouragement I can get to trust God's promises. I'd like to read you just one little passage because I would like you to know that people in power, people you think are much your superior 
in any other way um, might um, uh, my, for you to know that they need encouragement too. The strongest people you know need your encouragement. Here is St. Paul. This is um, the fifth to the seventh verse of chapter 7. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. But we were harassed <clears throat> at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. This is St. Paul. But God who comforts, excuse me, God who encourages the downcast encourages us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the encouragement you have given him. You, the ones in Macedonia, have Corinthians, had given Titus encouragement. And Titus was encouraging Paul. So it has nothing to do with who is the chief, Paul or Titus. The need for encouragement was mutual. I, I was blessed by two Tituses. Uh, some back in the 70s at Grace Church, New York, I was blessed with uh, a Paul and a, a, a Jim Monroe. Um, and they encouraged me uh, more than I, they know and more than I can say. Um, Jim Monroe once was quoting my, the text that I used in a sermon for me when I was in the middle of a kidney colic. Now, if you have a kidney stone and you're trying to pass it, it doesn't help you to go to bed because it hurts just as much in bed as if you're walking around. So I was walking around, and he said to me, he said, um, count it all joy. That was what I had been preaching before, you know, and, and suffering. You count it all joy. Well, he's here alive with us today because there, were table, there was a table between us and I couldn't choke him. Uh, but my wife and my daughter, um, they claim when Paul and Jim and I were all at Grace Church that the best preacher was Jim Monroe. See, what do women know? <laughs> um, and Paul, um, I think... You know, there are no heresies that don't have power. And Paul grew up with a, quite a virulent heresy of Christian science. But the truth in Christian science was encouragement, and I learned that from Paul. I don't know um, anyone who has had a successful ministry of encouragement as Paul. I'd like to see a show of hands of all of us who've heard had postcards from Paul. Postcard is one of the greatest vehicles of encouragement. You don't have to acknowledge them. You just know somebody cared and encouraged. It was a personification. And I thank God for those two Tituses. And my advice to you is to find some Tituses and encourage them and be encouraged by them and thank God for them. I read encouragement with which, but I don't need your encouragement. 
Let me say that again. I don't need your encouragement. I need the encouragement with which you have been encouraged. 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, verses 3 to 7. 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Five verses. Encouragement is in there, parakaleo, ten times. Suffering is there seven times. They are inextricably connected because of what I've said before. The afflictions and the suffering and to be encouraged. But it's not your encouragement and it's not my encouragement, but it's the encouragement with which you have been encouraged. Do any of you know Ross Wright? He was a great friend. He was an assistant to Harold Barrett at Grace Church some years ago. I used to work for his grandfather in a summer job. He's a real estate man. And some years later, when I was bishop, I went back to Edisto, where that happened. And I was passing time with the junior warden at Trinity Church at Edisto. And I said, buddy, did you ever know Mr. McGowan Holmes? And he said, um, no, Mr. Mack, Mr. Mack saved my life. I said, well, tell me about it. He said, I was 19 years old and I was drinking a quarter of liquor every day. And Mr. Mack came to see me and he says, buddy, you are killing yourself and your family loves you and I love you and you got to quit this drinking. And I looked up at Mr. Mack and I said, Mr. Mack, you don't know what it's like. I can't get through the day without a quart of liquor. And Mr. Mack looked down at me and he said, boy, I spilled more than that on my shoes and the Lord helped me to quit. He didn't comfort him. Well, then what did Buddy say? He said, do I know Mr. Mack Holmes? He saved my life. Did he tell him, did he encourage him with his own encouragement? No. I had enough willpower to do it. No. He encouraged him with the encouragement with which he was encouraged. That's verse 4, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, first chapter. That's the operative text in that group of words. Parakaleo, the Holy Spirit. That is the name of the Holy Spirit. And whose authority is that? But the Gospel of John, chapter 14, 15, and 16 as words to translate the Spirit's actions, comfort and encouragement can be vehicles or veritable organs of the Holy Spirit. But I would submit that beseech, used 40 times, exhort, used 29 times, can be very misleading they are terrible words for us, for the Spirit's actions. 
And parakaleo is translated 40 times as beseech and 29 times as exhort. Let me give you an example of this difference. In Hebrews 13.22, in the RSV, it reads, But I beseech you to bear with my word of exhortation. And the new um, in the NIV says, I urge you, I urge you, hear my word of exhortation. Or the New Living Translation, I urge you to pay attention to what I have just written in this brief exhortation. There's going to be an exam on this. That's not in the original. Um, But it sounds like it, doesn't it? All the King James is perhaps worst of all. And I beseech you, brethren, to suffer the word of exhortation. Now let me give you the right translation of this. But I encourage you to carry my work, my word, written in this brief encouragement. Is there not a difference with I urge you to pay attention to what I have written in this brief exhortation? And to use the word for urge, to use encourage. That is the word parakaleo. I'm not making that up. It's right there in the Greek. This brief exhortation, this brief encouragement, is that not an encouraging difference in those texts? Kittle shows us that parakaleo is primarily declarative. It's not hortatory, nor is it imperative. It's like the Declaration of Independence. It is not an exhortation to be free, but a declaration that we are free to change the mood from declaratory to imperative is, in the grammatical sense, is to change the spirit from gospel back into law and to a law that we are unable to obey and by which we are yet in condemnation. This kind of tendency to rely on the law. It was personified by me when I was a GI in the Army many, many years ago, and we had a real character for a sergeant. He used to tell us this little story about stopping on the road and seeing a man with a big, tall, stovepipe hat and a mustache and a whip in his hand and boots on his feet and a Packard automobile you can remember how you can realize how long ago this story came from is in a ditch and this guy is hitching up two little kittens to the bumper of that 
pack an automobile. And the old farmer that stopped by and says, Mister, you're not going to try to get them kittens to pull out that pack an automobile, are you? And the man says, Why not? I got a whip. Well, uh, you can imagine what sort of reaction that was for us. Uh, he, this sergeant said, and I got a whip. Um, well, it's far gone from the gospel, but so often that's where the gospel gets back to when imperative is substituted for uh, declarative. It is not that there is never a day for graceful use implied by the English word exhortation. Some exhortations can be declarative and graceful. I think of cheerleaders, or I think of the shooting guard at the last few seconds of the game, and it's tied, and he's been fouled, and he's got one shot. Uh, and I cannot imagine the coach saying to him, don't miss. So much so his fellows are going to go around him because they have better theology than we do sometimes and say, you can do it. That is an exhortation that has some grace in it. I would invite you to do a word study of Paracaleo in Scripture and as a preparation for Pentecost in a world in which the dictionary definitions of preach and sermon are virtually devoid of any definitions that would imply good news or gospel, but are replete with definitions such as a long, tiresome exhortation for preach, tedious addresses, a lecture on one's duties or conduct, an annoying harangue, <laughs> to lecture, to admonish, to scold. This is incontrovertible evidence of Pharisaic distortion of the Christian faith because dictionaries do not tell us what a word should mean, but what it means in the culture to which we are sent with paracaleo written on our hearts. The best illustration, however, is the 12th chapter of St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans the one letter that Paul is not, in which he has not responded to some special issues like Galatians and Corinthians, but, and he has no special, specific agenda forced upon him, but is laying out the whole gospel to people largely of whom he was not aware of, did not know, would know, and that he was not responding to some particular thing in their community. So for 11 chapters, there's a declaration of faith, of righteousness by faith, of the reality of sin and the declaration of Christ's death and his resurrection and the power of grace without any exhortation for 11 chapters. 
but I lie. There are three exhortations in chapter 6. But those three exhortations use the word parakaleo and mistranslate this as you also must consider yourselves. Anytime you must believe, that is the opposite of the Christian faith. But the Greek is here also to reckon yourselves as dead into sin. Not just you must believe you're dead in sin, but the parakaleo yourself as dead into sin. It should read, encourage yourselves, comfort yourselves as dead unto sin. And they are, and in these only three verses with exhortations, and even those exhortations are parakaleo. Only that in all 11 chapters before coming to chapter 12. And chapter 12 opens up with the operative word, therefore. It goes on and gives us 40 exhortations in only 21 verses. And that's where most people just start in their preaching. It's a place to be, and it is magnificent. Uh, let no debts remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves the fellow man fulfills the law. The commandments do not commit adultery. Do, um, excuse me, I'm reading from 13. <laughs> love must be sincere. Hate which is evil. Cling to that which is good. Be devoted to one another as brotherly in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in tribulation, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Isn't that wonderful? But it comes in chapter 12. Not only that, but therefore, according to NIV here, I urge you, it's parakaleo. Therefore, I encourage you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice. Oh, I beseech you, brethren. What a difference, is there not? I encourage you, therefore. The Spirit here is one of declaration. The Spirit is God's initiative, God's prevenient grace. It is not dependent upon our encouragement. You don't need it from me, and I don't need it from you, but I desperately need the encouragement with which you have been encouraged, and you need the encouragement with which I have been encouraged. Thank you.
I don't preach. Hey, that's okay. Well, that's fine. That's fine. Jeremy, where, where's the mic? I encourage you to let those questions percolate. Bishop, I'm Frampton Harper from South Carolina. Greetings from South Carolina again. Thank you. Good to see you here. Good to have someone without an accent. <laughs> <laughs> My son texted me yesterday and said, did they talk funny up there? I said, no, they think we talk funny up here. Um, Bishop, I'd ask that you comment on the difference between sympathy and empathy in our interactions with one another. Thank you. Sympathy and empathy. I'm not sure I'm philologically checked out to do that. Um, with pathos, uh, sympathy would be to care. And it seems to me um, uh, that's empathy. Um, I'm not sure how that would differ. I, you wouldn't have asked the question without some wisdom about it. Please share it with us. <laughs> Pathos to sympathize with someone yeah. else is to understand objectively yeah. what they're going through. Yes. Empathize is to share in their sufferings because you've been there. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. That's exactly what I'm trying to convey. As, uh, <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, For example, my father passed away about nine months ago. Yes. And many in this room have lost their father. Yes. It wasn't until my father passed away that when someone spoke to me, they could share that. I'm an attorney, and another attorney in South Carolina came to my office my first day back at work and explained to me he lost his father 40 years ago. Yes. Um, from his perspective, the new place where I was now in my life. Yes. And that's because he could empathize. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, I should have had that. I'll try to take you around with me. <laughs> One of the things I think uh, we need to know historically is uh, it was an essay by T.S. Eliot on the dissociation of sensibility that he claimed occurred in the 17th century and that blend of thought and passion that was so a part of a coming together in Shakespeare and Cranmer and John Donne uh, lost that easy accessibility in Dryden and in Milton later. They didn't cause it. It just occurred. And then it's only in the rarest situations in any art form since then uh, were, was this thought and passion put together with any kind of easy accessibility as they had before the middle of the 17th century. So you have uh, people who still want the King James Bible because they just, I fain would fill my belly with the husks that the swine did eat is a hell of a lot better than anything we can do since the 18th century and expressing that. And, and they know that. Um, so you're stuck with some inadequate translations because of the beauty of that language. 
Um, and I, th I think that's a tremendous, um, uh, that we made orphans of our feelings and it, it, come back, it comes back in romantic rebellions, you see, without the discipline of the mind, as in Nazism, you see. I enjoyed, uh, again, thank you so much, uh, Bishop, for being here. I really enjoyed uh, you artfully uh, speaking about the word encouragement. What would you say are the, if you could articulate some of the heresies which challenge our ability to give true and proper encouragement today in the United States? Well, uh, God helps those who help themselves. Uh, isn't that in the scripture somewhere? Uh, the answer is no. It's not anywhere in the scripture. Um, I, I think uh, I, I agree with Winston Churchill that democracy is the worst possible way to manage things except for all the alternatives. Uh, but democracy and free economy, we have tried to make a religion out of that. It's the secular religion. And neither, we've just had the experience of the economy not being self-regulating. And another one, of course, I think, is the incomparable influence of Ayn Rand in her Atlas Shrug and her, uh, what's the other one? Yeah, you all, say it again. Fountainhead, thank you. Um, she, her religion is is human reason, and she she can trust uh, she can trust enlightened selfishness, and none other than Paul Greenspan was her acolyte and has not altogether repented yet. And uh, the CEO of the, uh, one of the biggest banks in the United States, uh, BB&T, I think his name is Allison, though he's no relation that I know of, uh, he is an absolute evangelical uh, evangelist for uh, Ayn Rand. And you would think that um, there would have been some realization as uh, uh, Greenspan did say in front of the, uh, I, I was shocked, I was knocked over. You couldn't, I didn't know you could not trust um, the reason and the uh, human nature here to regulate itself. And uh, we got, we've gotten it. Am I getting to that question? Thank you. Another question. 
comment. Aaron. Um, a lot of times when people think of encouragement, they think about um, coming to somebody who's suffering and saying, everything's going to be okay, mm -hmm. which is not always the most encouraging thing to say. Um, sometimes in, what's meant as encouragement can feel like a, they're there, don't cry, like a, mm -hmm. a Band-Aid to sort of shut down one's emotions. And I would just be interested to hear your reflections on what real encouragement looks like um, uh, for somebody who's suffering. Thank you. That's a very good question. Um, I'll give an illustration in which I went to see someone that I thought had broken her ankle, and when I got there, I found out it was that she had just been diagnosed. She'd stumbled and fallen, but it was not because of the ankle. It was because of multiple sclerosis, and that is a mean disease. And I went to see her, and she said, why did this happen to me? Is this something I have done wrong that deserves this. And this is invariably human nature's reaction to something like that, that we are in control and we are somehow responsible, so if it happens, I must have caused it. Sometimes, of course, if you drink too much rum at night and have a headache the next day, the headache does have something to do with what you did the night before. <laughs> but there also is a terrible amount of random things that have nothing to do, as Jesus said to those people who asked him uh, about the people, the 18 people upon whom the power of Siloam had fallen, are they more wicked than the rest of us? And he said, no, I tell you, no. And so I said to her, Jesus said, no, it's not something you've done. But I did not finish Jesus' text. What did he say next? Unless you repent, you also will suffer. Well, I don't think it was the time <laughs> to add that, but my ministry should have added that, and it didn't. It's one of the many things for which I must be accountable, uh, so that true um, consolation and encouragement uh, has to do with some tough stuff because unless we repent and I'm getting into Sunday's sermon but uh, repentance is another one of those Greek words that Jesus did not have an, as far as I know an aromatic word I mean, the translators did not have an aromatic word and well, let's take the illustration of Ashley Knoll, who wrote this magnificent book on Cranmer called Cranmer's Doctrine of Repentance. And he was promised by, by Oxford University Press that he would put the whole title on the front cover, and they reneged and didn't do it. The whole title is Thomas Cranmer's doctrine of repentance, renewing the power to love, 
I don't blame him for being upset. What does repentance mean for the average person? Remorse. Uh-oh, that is bad. I shouldn't have done that. You want to read about Cranmer's repentance, about his sadness, and what it is, remorse. You know. But then turn the page and get into the title, Renewing the Power of Love. Oh, gee, doesn't all, all of us need that. Renewing the power of love. And what Ashley has taught us in here by paraphrasing some stuff that Melanchthon had given is that what the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Let me say it again. What the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. And unfortunately, the very word repentance does literally mean changing your one's mind. But if you look and do a word study on repentance, you will find without exception, every time it is using, it is a change of heart and not simply of mind. If you want to change somebody's mind, you've got to get to their heart. And the Greeks didn't know this, though the Hebrews did. So the Greek if you're going to translate in the Greek, all you got is metanoying, change mind. You don't have a metacardia, change heart, you see. So going back to the encouragement of repentance is, why not me? And what kind of God do we have but one who took this suffering upon himself? and suffered for us and is himself the sufferer in order that we may have the confidence of the promise of the power of the resurrection and live under that condition. So repentance is a, is a change of heart and it's a much more positive word and I don't blame Ashley for being peeved that they didn't put the whole thing on it. It's renewing the power to love. Jeremy. Um, Bishop Allison, if you could, I'm just going to ask a simple question, but if, could you speak um, to the difference between the meanings of the word uh, encouragement and exhortation? Because at least I've heard those two things confused frequently. Yes, I, I concede, I try to use the basketball illustration, that there can be a, a, an exhortation that is indeed encouragement. But it seems to me, for the most part, um, we experience exhortations as imperatives um, and not de de declaratives. Uh, and it's just more law about what we should do. I'm, I exhort you to do your homework, you know, or you'll never get in a decent college. Um, whereas uh, to encourage you uh, to fall in love with the homework and all of that you may be and you may enjoy the preparation for college uh, to change I think it's one of the uh, great challenges for parents especially mothers who are left with responsibilities so often uh, to 
do this kind of encouragement with their children that is not exhortation in the pejorative and in the imperative sense, because that's simply law, but to find the promise in the duty that enables one uh, to fulfill it. Bishop Allison, it's Paul Walker in Charlottesville, and I'm thinking about just your amazing and long experience as a, in the church as a rector and then as bishop, wondering if you have anything like encouragement for uh, us in the church, mainline church, still uh, attempting to preach this message. Yes, indeed, I have it, because you're all sitting there. I can't tell you what an encouragement it is to me just to meet you. I was eight years on the um, admissions committee, excuse me, 11 years on the admissions committee at, at Sewanee, and eight years on the admissions committee at Virginia. And I've when the Episcopal Church was something you could tell your unbelieving mother-in-law um, about, and she said, well, it's better than being a social worker to be in an Episcopal clergyman. So it wasn't, but now to be in an Episcopal clergyman, I mean, it's almost as bad as being an Episcopal bishop, you know. It's, <laughs> um, it's, 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 it's not a, you know, it's, someone told me that in the, back in the 50s, uh, Episcopal bishops were ranked two or three in Fortune magazine's most respected um, people. They're not even in the 25 now, and uh, probably down below um, Sailor. So here you are concerned on a level of theology that I never knew was about in my 83 years as an Episcopalian in a brand name denomination um, that had aesthetic qualities that none of the rest had, and genetic qualities, of course, that nobody has. <laughs> joke now, joke, please joke. <laughs> um, but um, I, you are this encouragement. I didn't interview people the quality that I see right here. Uh, Falls Church in Virginia has asked me to do some vetting sometimes, and I've met several um, chaps there that I just never saw. Uh, the commitment, the spiritual maturity. Uh, it's just encouraging to me to see you there. Thank God for you. Uh, what encouragement do I have to you? It's your encouragement to me. Just thank God for you. Thank God for letting me be here to see it before I die. See it bubbling over with confidence. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm thinking about um, people who might not know that they need encouragement. Uh, people who think these are some of the heresies you were talking about earlier. Uh, people who think they've got all the answers already, that their heart's in a pretty good place. And um, how do we encourage those kinds of people with the encouragement that we've been given? I think, first of all, is to 
in your heart to know they're lying. Uh, there isn't anybody that doesn't need encouragement. Um, and there isn't anybody that isn't very lonely. And especially in these times now, there's something about the secular religion, because it is a religion, it's a commitment, it's a trust they've decided to have, that there isn't any um, justice. There's nothing on the other end of the line. And I mean, it produces loneliness. You know, uh, I had a dear friend once who was ch chairman of the, uh, president of the American Bar Association for um, Supreme Court justices, his wife's funeral, uh, belonged to every significant club in the city of New York. And on his deathbed, he asked for his best friend, Eric McKittrick, and Eric said to me, we were acquaintances. We were scarcely good friends. Here was a man desperately lonely, and you would have thought he needed no encouragement. Now, it's harder for those people because the mask, the mask keeps us from seeing the hurt and the loneliness. Uh, my sister was sort of opening conversations with people that she hadn't seen in many years uh, after she moved to Alabama from Chapel Hill, and she started asking, well, how are your children? And when the third person burst into tears, she said, I started some other way of opening the conversation. You know? <laughs> I mean, you talk about impossible duties that we are given as raising children, you know. And every mother needs some encouragement. I wish I had more wisdom for the earlier question about how do you do this encouragement, you know. Uh, that would be a, a good thing to concentrate on. We have time for a couple more. We do have time for a couple more. Bishop Allison, this may be, I don't know, kind of think this might be a silly question, but um, what, um, when Paul is giving us this encouragement in the, in the later parts of, uh, the, um, of his epistles, what exactly is he trying to enable in the hearers? What, what's, the, what's the point of it? I think the point is, is confidence and power. Um, he, he came... And to all who received him, gave he the power to become the children of God. It's a dunamis. Get the word dynamite from it. It's a, uh, it's a, he wants us to have that graceful power that we ordinarily don't have. Or if we do have any power that is not consecrated, it's self-damaging. And thank you so much for your introduction the other night. Uh, I was sort of dumbfounded. Uh, having um, looked over uh, 19 and 21 years of study and, and seeing what I hadn't done, um, so I had every reason to have uh, the humility not to accept this flattering introduction. But um, when you said that I was responsible for these folks, um, I want to suggest that, um, of course, God is, and many people are, but it's Paul's all. It's Paul's people here. And um, I was uh, 
tempted, I am tempted to say, I'm going to be, succumb to this temptation, that um, um, th there was a time when uh, George Whitfield, um, uh, at the end of his life, said, my brother Wesley was right, whereas his people is a people, my people is a rope of sand. And I, I feel that way about Paul. I look at the House of Bishops and so many of them I taught. I can see people all around that I'm ashamed to say that I had taught, you know. And I look at you folks and uh, see this, and it's a people. And I thank God for it. Thank you, Bishop Allison. Thank you so much. Let's get it.